0: In my case, I started with a call to action. As I've evolved in my collecting journey, we have evolved from being a collection of stuff that lives in houses that we like to being a mission-driven collection where we try to achieve measurable results.
1: Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. Today we're speaking with Pamela Joyner. Based in San Francisco, Pamela and her husband, Fred Gifuda's collection consists of over 400 works with a primary focus on abstract works of art by artists of the African diaspora from the 1940s onwards. The collection is widely recognized as one of the most significant collections of modern contemporary art by African-American artists. In September 2017, Hammer and Fed published a scholarly catalogue of the collection titled Four Generations, the joyner Jeffuda Collection of Abstract Art. Following the publication, select works from the exhibition have been included in an extensive touring exhibition, which opened at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art in New Orleans, and has continued on to several other US museums. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely. This is an initiative we've wanted to do for quite some time, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them, and what inspires them. Welcome, Pamela, and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So, how did you start collecting? You've now got 400 works. What what caused that enormous Influence.
0: Very circumstantially. Um, you know, when I was uh, in business school at my second year at Harvard Business School, I met Lowry Sims. And Lowry was then at the um, Metropolitan Museum of Art, where she had been hired maybe almost, not quite a decade, yeah, about a decade earlier. Uh, and she was the first African-American curator ever hired by the Met. And um, she just got to know several of the African-American students at Harvard and, you know, imparted to all of us that it was important to uh, promote African-American culture by collecting art. And so it took me a number of years of working in the investment business to um, have the wherewithal to collect art, Uh, but I remembered what Lowry said, and uh, when I started collecting art, I collaborated with Lowry, and she helped guide my thinking. Um, And that was sort of the gateway to what is a life's passion.
1: And do you collect exclusively African-American artists or artists of the African diaspora?
0: Exclusively artists of the African diaspora, but there are some of those artists that identify as black and some that do not. And so uh, today, roughly, 15% 15% of the collection is uh, populated by South African artists. Uh, and so we own artists like William Kentridge and Xander Blum and um, Mikhail Sabotsky and other uh, South African artists who do not identify as black. But the whole point is of uh, the collection is to underscore that race is a poor and arbitrary lens through which to view art, and so the reason we have a focus that looks on the surface like it focuses on ethnic background is because these artists have arbitrarily been excluded from real consideration and from true integration in the canon. Um, but the point is that they shouldn't have been based on the criteria of race. Um, we tell a global story because some of these confining and binding constraints uh, apply to people globally. And then we discover also and that's the, that's, that's the bad news. The good news is that our aesthetic is a global phenomenon. And so I find fantastic artists in Latin America and in Europe and uh, in South Africa uh, and elsewhere in Africa. And you know then you ask yourself, um, you know, not only what defines sort of ethnic boundaries, and you know, ask yourself the question of whether they're important or whether they're not, I would say they're not important. And then you get the hybridity of national boundaries. So one artist we love, for instance, is Robin Rhoda, born in South Africa, living in Berlin, and making in Berlin, Did that, does that make him a German artist? Does that make him a South African artist? You know, he's represented uh, primarily in the US, spends a lot of time here, what does that make him? To me, it just makes him a great artist, full stop.
1: <coughs> but I think it's an incredibly important point because actually what you're talking about, I mean, when you started, you know, with talking about the South African artists, two of the first artists you mentioned, William Kentridge and Mikhail Sobotsky terrific artists um, are white artists. They are. They're white South African artists. Right. So for anybody who doesn't know that, who's listening, that's a very important point. And one of the things that you've spoken about a lot, and, and I really loved you uh, the way that you spoke about it um, and have talked about it, is that it is not about ethnicity. It is not about skin color. It is about supporting a community of artists who've been overlooked. Yes. Um, and we are in a moment where that seems more current and more pressing and more urgent than ever. Because, for instance, 10 or 15 years ago, we might have been talking about, um, you know, artists from Brazil or Russia or, or China or India. Um, but now we're really talking about. The fact that there are enormous communities who've been completely overlooked—women, women, um,
0: women—and right? women last I checked, we were half, and that's a global fifty-one percent <laughs> in this country at least, okay.
1: which and have been completely disadvantaged historically, both by collecting collectors, institutions, um, auction houses. Women go for far less money than their male colleagues sell for. Um, So it's an area that there is an enormous imbalance that needs to be redressed. Yes. Um, So in thinking of all those things, was it Larry's enthusiasm and call to action to to support a community that was the most important thing for you?
0: Well, I mean, you ask where you start. And in my case, I started with a call to action. And so as I've evolved in my collecting (laughs) journey... Um, We have evolved from just being a collection of stuff that lives in houses that we like uh, to being a mission-driven collection where we try to achieve measurable results. And we have a mission statement and we have a strategy. And every year in November, I put together sort of a Um, a group of execution targets for the subsequent year. Um, I do it that way just because that's my natural way of thinking about and ordering the world. Um, But it makes it easy for me to um, know what it is I'm aiming for at any given point in time. And so, for instance, when I look at what it is I'm planning to buy for 2019, uh, and I didn't come to it with this in mind, I just have considered the landscape of new information I've developed over the last few months. And so there are more women on my target list than not. Um, But that's just simply a function of the great artists that we um, are thinking about integrating into the collection who dialogues with whom and, you know, If they're younger or mid-career artists it's me making discoveries about the efficacy of the practices so there are you know young and mid-career women uh, in our space that we think have a lot to say and so we're going to actively add them to the collection.
1: Do you recall that there was a moment where your thinking about what you were engaged in went from collecting to a collection?
0: Yes. I mean, it's actually when I was living in London, when I first got involved with Tate and met Nick Sirota, had occasion to sit down with him and have a detailed conversation. And Nick said to me that, you know, we're a global collecting institution. We think we have some competitive advantage doing this, but a place where we have a hole in the collection is African-American art. And he then turned to me and said, can you help us? Um, and Tate's a really open place full of both very established and young, inquisitive scholars who, when you simply sat in the boardroom and asked, have you considered, if they hadn't considered, they would consider it. And so you see Tate actually in the area of artists of African descent being a real leader in the field, because when they considered the questions, they got enthusiastic about the answers.
1: Yeah. One of the other things that you've spoken about very eloquently that I like very much is is you, you've talked about it is not just about the ethnicity of the artist, it's about the quality of the work. It's about the quality of the work. And that you always come back to that as a guiding principle.
0: Well, yeah, for a number of reasons. One, it's what I try to accomplish in our own collecting. I'm not interested in the tertiary player. I'm interested in the primary players who are making transformational work that actually stakes a claim in the full arc of the canon. So I can look at that painting over there by Hugo MacLeod, and I can suggest that Hugo has an unusual faculty with the use of materials. Um, It comes to him uh, not only by virtue of you know, the academic training that he does have, but it's an intergenerational phenomenon where his grandfather and father were both, in a different way, interested in materiality, and he had sort of practical exposure for his whole life- He's a maker. To materials. He's a maker, like Leonardo Drew over there is a maker, like Jack Whitten over here is a maker. He's a maker, and I would also suggest, as I have suggested to him, and I love this in his, Um, you know, zip painting series. I don't know how exactly you guys are calling those. Um, He has a particular faculty with the place where metal and paint intersect. And I think that that is not only an unusual, but a virtually unique statement. And that's what I'm looking for.
1: Right. Do you think that that's more prevalent in certain communities of artists than in others, that
0: facility? I don't. I think creatives crop up all over the place. So, for instance, I, just for a whole circumstantial set of reasons, probably go to China once a year. And when I, I mean, and I've been fortunate to visit some of the studios of some of the senior artists there engaged in abstract painting. And if I had unlimited resources, I'd collect a bunch of that art and put it, you know, hang it with my art because the stories are so parallel. A lot of them were expelled from the country because the art was radical, they were overlooked, they were in Europe making, and then in in the current um, social and political environment, they're able to come back home and get their due recognition, right? Now, the likelihood that they were looking at the same artist of the same generation that I'm fond of, of the African diaspora, is not very high, but there is something universal about the um, disruptive and subversive nature of abstraction that can apply in a Chinese political environment, that can apply in an African American environment, that certainly applied in a South African environment. Um, And so um, that actually, again, underscores that the boundaries of nationality and race are really superficial and arbitrary. There's just something about the human condition that wants to be expressive uh, to the greatest extent um, um, of, you know, freedoms that are imaginable. There is something freeing about abstraction. And there's something in a lot of cultures that's equally subversive about that level of freedom.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in China, the the, the abstraction's been used in a very in a very um, smart, subversive way. Yeah. And for instance, in in, in Cuba as well, a degree of abstractions yes. allowed people to construct dialogues that if they were more explicit would have been very difficult.
0: Right, and when they were deciphered, the, uh, in the case of some of the Chinese artists, they became dangerous and that's yeah. why they didn't had go to, so well didn't go so well, so they had to get out of town, yeah. so to speak.
1: Um, when, when, Pamela, would you say the, the collection is now, in your eyes, you know, the, we're talking about this moment of the inception of the idea of collecting. Is it sort of 20 years old now, the collection? Yeah, it's 20 years old It's now. 20 years old. There's about 400 works in the collection. Um, you are extremely articulate on this, on the mission of the collection, on the notion of, uh, of the culture of how you collect. And you've just said that, you know, you could see another parallel collection of yeah. Chinese abstraction. Alongside. If you were advising somebody who wanted to start collecting, where would you tell them to be looking? Would you be advising them to, to collect in a much broader way, in a much more focused way? How would you advise them to start a collection?
0: Well, I personally like focus uh, just because I well, think you very disciplined. <laughs> well, but I also think... That if you decide your remit is to collect global contemporary art, even if you ring fence dates of birth of artists, uh, or dates of birth of work, or you know, or dates of the creation of the work, this is, you know, this is endless. Enormous, yeah. It's enormous. So what's really been fun for me is to. To, to find um, a, an issue and a challenge that needs addressing and to attempt to address it, right? Other collectors have said there is a, a vacuum, as you pointed out earlier, of women getting their full due in the canon. So I would say identify an issue and addre- or a vacuum or a need and address it. I would say that to any collector, any new or young collector.
1: You're African American. The collection is primarily African American or the African diaspora. It was an obvious choice as an underrepresented, I hate the word minority, but as an underrepresented community to address that inequity. Yes. I would imagine. Yeah, it was an
0: obvious choice. Yeah.
1: Um, not everybody has that degree of focus and you are both focused and disciplined should we be thinking i I mean i think we are in many respects but should we be thinking about the fact that asian Art is very underrepresented. In well, I,
0: absolutely, I sat on the board of the Asian Art Museum right. in San Francisco. Right. We absolutely should be yeah. thinking about that. But that's but that's vast, right? Yeah. I mean, you can think about it on a pan-Asian basis. You can think about it, you know, over two thousand years, or you can pick regional or time-bound uh, bites of that. Um, and so, I think there's unlimited ability to address that question. I happen to love, you know, Chinese abstract painters, most of whom are in their 50s and 60s, because they are, those stories are so parallel. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that there's anybody collecting that work, but as I say, if I had a parallel budget, I'd go collect that work. And I, you know, I can think of, you know, two dozen painters who are really, really interesting to me.
1: We can't allow you to do that because you'd be straying <laughs> off and this community that you're so important to, that you've been so uh, important to r- lifting up would, would, would be very upset if we allowed you to do that. So you're not allowed to do that. okay?
0: Well, I'm sad about that <laughs> because, like I say, every time I go to China, I go visit studios. I mean, they're just some remarkable artists in that community.
1: Isn't it interesting that, I mean, I'm I'm old enough to pretty much uh, remember in, in my own lifetime that, you know, I'm, I'm from Europe and we always thought that Europe and America were the centers of the universe. Right. And that, that, that the conversation about contemporary art was pretty much Eurocentric or American-centric. And nobody looked at any of the other communities. And in the last 30 years, all of those communities have started to come into play much, much more. And it does feel as if the universe is expanding at an exponential rate, and it's really hard to keep up with for any of us. I Right. Think. So, how do you maintain that focus and discipline?
0: Well, I mean, but there. Well, I mean, again, you know, I'm pretty specific. You know, I'm trying to collect work done post World War II up to this date. Now there is a global narrative that we want to have an abstract sensibility, um, but there are regions I haven't really unpacked. I mean, I'm just now starting to think about artists from the Caribbean. And one artist that we're very focused on and have been, um, you know, very enthusiastic about it is a young woman born in the Dominican Republic, Feray Bias. Mm. Um, but I haven't really done the it's rest fantastic. of And she's a fantastic. She's, she's I mean, yeah. she, you know, there are many aspects of that practice that are really, really compelling. I have not done very much in South America, but there's some obvious places where I should spend more time, Brazil being the most obvious one. Um, And we've done some, but not enough. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, um, you know, just sticking to the discipline I have, there's still I could double the size of the collection and say and and tell my make just arbitrary decision rules like don't buy any more US artists and there's a lot to do. Sure. Or don't buy any artists born before 1980 and there's a huge amount to do.
1: So you have a sort of prescription for 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 thinking.
0: I have a prescription for thinking, then I you know, but I make the rules and I break the rules. It's fairly
1: mutable, right? Yeah. So That was going to be my question. I
0: mean, as far as I'm concerned, rules are made to be broken. Do you break the rules? Well, it depends (coughs) on what you define as a breaking of the rules. So on the surface, you could say I broke the rules when I bought quite a lot of work by um, Lynette Yaidambachi. But my view is she's an abstract painter. I could make that case. I mean, these are not sitters. They're not real people. They're not paintings from photographs of people. They're imagined people.
1: That's an interesting, that's a very interesting idea. Well, and about
0: a year ago, I read, and I can't remember where I read it, but some venerable art critic or curator described her work as abstraction. Huh.
1: Hmm. We have to find that reference. (laughs) Um, Is there a, is there a, an institution in the future? You, you work with a number of institutions worldwide. I do. And many other collectors who have less work in their collection than you do have opened it. their own museums uh, in America, their own institutions. Do you see that in the
0: future? It's fear? not really for me. Um, one, I have had transformational experiences partnering with the institutions in which I participate. I talked about Tate Getty has now launched a remarkable African-American art history initiative, and in the year um, that it's been in the planning stages, they have some real material and tangible results that will change the field. Um, And in that case, they're endeavoring to do things that traditional museums do not or cannot do, Uh, and they have the resources writ large, not just the money, they have the intellectual capital, they have the, the s- scholars, the um, publication infrastructure, the digitization infrastructure to make an you know enduring contribution to art history. So I'm interested in that which is enduring. And I think my highest and best use is some of the activities in which I've been involved, not necessarily. A building with my own name on it.
1: So the collection is the Joyner Gifreda collection? Yes. And so... Talk to me about Fred and does he have the power of Vita? How does this work? How does this dynamic work?
0: So he would just, and we probably describe it a little bit differently you know, I have the time to go do the research and do the travel. He, you know, you know he still has a full-time day job, <laughs> uh, and so, which is a good thing. Um, and so, you know, I mean, one of the constraints is time. Initially, one of the constraints was this wasn't his key interest, but he got the bug pretty bad. And so now it is his key interest. Um, and really, the, I mean, and so he would say he is the limited partner with limited decision-making authority, but also limited financial exposure. Um, So he gets to veto (laughs) when we get past sort of the the parameters that we set. The reality of how it works is, um, you know, I get out there and I do the legwork and I don't think Fred has ever vetoed anything I've been interested in doing. He has stepped in front of me and decided he wanted to do things that like weren't on my plan, weren't on my list, weren't in my budget. Uh, and I does will tell have, you, does he
1: have a copy of the prescription? Has he? Read he does. It? Hey, he, he has read
0: the prescription, um, but he, <laughs> you know, and you know, as we get, you know, further into this journey, he does um, discard the prescription more regularly and assert uh, whatever it is he thinks um you know, the influences that he has that he uh, that he wants to assert. Um, but when he has done that, he's been absolutely right. And it, the, the instances he does that go like this. Is this a masterpiece, the individual work of art? Um, is this iconic to the artist's practice? Is the artist someone who will be indelibly etched into the canon? So, for instance, one of the, the, the um, paintings he did this with recently is he kind of walked into an art fair, of all places, saw a 2016 black monolith painting by Jack Witten, and just bought it. He didn't ask me about it. <laughs> he, he didn't discuss it. He just said, we'll take it. Um, that was the right answer, but it's not how we customarily do things. But he was right. And I'm thrilled that we own that work. It's That's been right. traveling with the Met Breuer BMA right. show, um, and it's a it's a really special, special painting by an artist who you know was really near and dear to us, and whose work we own from the 1960s to
1: 2016. Wow. Let me ask you about this moment and the market. Do you feel? Um, is, is there a, a a sense of conflict about this moment where the market is paying much more attention to artists of color and to women and lifting lifting them up and thereby lifting prices up? I mean, it'd be really hard to argue that it's not a great thing that more attention is being paid.
0: I really don't think about the market, right? I mean, if you were to look at what we own, who we own, and why we own it. What we're trying to do is fill the gaps in from an art historical point of view. I mean, you know, Sam Gilliam is a great color field painter, um, as is Frank, Frank Bowling in certain series and Alma Thomas. And so we're trying to tell these stories. Jack Whitten was a great maker of paintings. He influenced another great maker of paintings by the name of Mark Bradford, who in turn um, gave a, an early solo show to another maker, who I would argue, though there no paint is contained in the work, just like no paint is contained in Mark's work, in a certain series, in certain series, Kevin Beasley, Proposes to paint with fabric in the way Mark Bradford paints with paper, in the way that Jack Witten painted with paint that he reconfigured and remade into more um, material substance that turned him into a maker, not a painter of paintings. So there is this um, real through strand that is art historical. So that's what I'm after. Now, like in a lot of areas of endeavor, I mean, like I say, I come from the investment business and a measure of success is the financial result. And we're conflicted in the art world about how we think about that. But if you just transfer that analogy to the art world, it's right that these artists should get more rec- recognition and subsequently become more expensive, not as a commentary on their worth or, you know, sort of a, a financial commentary. It's a measure of their contribution to the historical conversation. Um, yeah, and well, it I, is a natural outcome.
1: And I think one would, ar- I would certainly argue that. It's uh, an an adjustment, both um, historical and aesthetic, um, philosophical and financial, that's long overdue.
0: Yeah, I I would not argue with that. But the other observation I would make is that if you're really looking at, you know, any generation of these painters relative to their peers, however expensive they are, they're still undervalued. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: The really good ones, you know, so.
1: Is there a... I mean, is there a background for you or Fred uh, in your families of collecting? No, none at all. None at all. So nobody collected baseball cards or no. Nothing? Nobody, no, no, nothing. No, absolutely nothing. So where did this gene come from?
0: Well, where, because I mean, you've
1: talked about how you know it is like getting a bug or a virus, and that you both have that now. Yes. Um, and this is a very common thing that we talk with collectors about that it may just come out of left field and become, it, you know, there is no historical precedent for that.
0: Well, for me, it didn't come out of left field. I, while my, par- my parents were teachers, so they were not collectors, but, but they always, from the time, I am the poster child for the importance of early childhood arts education. Um, so my parents made sure I was immersed in the visual arts and immersed in the performing arts. Um, I chair the board of a ballet company. I took a year off of college to dance in a ballet company. So the arts have been part of my life for my whole life. So it's always been something that
1: consistently important.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I probably have not gone two weeks in life without going to a museum in life, right? And so it's just, a, it's just part of, you know, the air I breathe. It's just what it's I do. Natural. Yeah, it's very yeah. natural.
1: Yeah. Um, what what happens to the collection in the future? You're giving work away.
0: We'll give some work away. Um, you know, our heirs will get some work. Um, this t- Now, this is, you asked Fred's role. So Fred, even though um, he left the practice of law some time ago, he is a lawyer by training. And, and, you know, before he came to the other side, some would say the dark side in the financial business, he ran a law firm. Um, and so... So, from a technical legacy planning point of view, you might say the division of labor is I'm in charge of acquisitions, and he's in charge of deaccessioning right. um, and so he pays he is actually uh, more focused on this aspect of the collection than I am, um, but you know, hopefully you know some of it will come to fruition many years from now, but we you start planning for it now. Sure. And so we're doing that. We do those exercises.
1: And do you think of that as being across a number of dis- different institutions or a core group of works going to one institution? How are you thinking about that? You may not have made that decision. But, we
0: haven't made those decisions. But how are you thinking we're about th- that? We're thinking, we are that's wanting the to, we, that's, the, that's part of the conversation. But whatever the answer is, the question we'll be asking is, where will the gift be most highly activated? Where will it get the most visibility? And not just on the walls, where will it have the greatest impact? Um, And that is the question. Did you
1: start off, when you started collecting, and this conversation with Larry, who's an old friend and a wonderful person, did Was the trajectory very traditional? Did you start by buying prints and then you graduated to drawings and then paintings or
0: how oh, did it evolve? I started, well, I, now, now I don't buy very many multiples, some, but usually for quite specific reasons. Mm-hmm. We have a suite of Mark Bradford merchant poster prints because that's the key to the rest of what he does. Um, we live in California, so it's not that we don't have drawings. Sometimes that's what we can find from the artists that we're interested in. But we also don't like to leave our whole house you know, with no light coming in. And so while all of those drawings are you know, light, or protected against light, we don't wanna live in the dark yeah. in California. So, I mean, there are practical considerations. I love sculpture, but uh, if you look at our collection, most of the sculpture, like that piece, hangs on a wall. Why? Because sculpture is a real estate decision and not like I don't want a museum, I don't want a sculpture park either. But there are certain uh, individuals and and artists like Mel Edwards, actually what we have is mostly on the wall, and um, Martin Purrier who would, if we didn't own them, they'd be gaping holes in the narrative. So we have to own them. They're obvious omissions. So we try to avoid the obvious omissions. Um, but I can't have as many of those as I can have Jack Whitten paintings.
1: And in terms of media, or medium, um, the collection's very broad. So there's works on paper, there's photographs, there's paintings, there's sculpture. There's not a
0: lot of photographs. One, because I don't have a high level of understanding of photography. And video? Any video? There's no video. No not, video. That, not that I would exclude it, but it has to fit. You know, it has to dialogue with other things in the collection. The bigger the collection gets, and the longer we go without buying video, the more difficult that's going to be.
1: But that's interesting in terms of Robin Road and in terms of um, William Kentridge.
0: Well, but if you look at what we, we don't own a lot. We own one work by William, and we have to have it because he's the gateway to South African modernism. That's how we think of it. Robin, uh, a lot of people don't realize Robin Road is a great abstract painter. Huh. And so when he tags those walls, if you were to take those taggings on a standalone basis, they're great abstract paintings. And there has been a period in his career where he isolated those images as abstract paintings. So we own the, you know, the Cyril Moy Bridge style photography, Mm -hmm. but we also own abstract paintings. And I can't wait. And he's done drawings in that ilk, and, you know, I'd love to own more of that. He is a multifaceted, multi-talented artist with more than, you know, sort of one channel. Um, and he's also still quite young. Yeah. And so even though he had very, very early success, I mean, it's easy to think of him as being older than he is. He's actually really quite young. He's multifaceted. And the work is fascinating. I can't wait to see him do some more of what it is we already own. Are you looking, you 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 say you're in China once
1: a year, and it's actually a really fascinating corollary, this idea of Chinese abstraction that you were talking about, which I haven't really thought about in that way, but I think it's very interesting. Um, there are markets, I mean, the Chinese market is now three, four generations in a way deep, or well, three or four decades deep, um, certainly. Are you starting to look at, Malaysia or the Philippines or Singapore are those are those much more emerging markets. So no, 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 no,
0: no. Well, they're of interest if they have if those markets contain figures who should be pivotal to art history who are of African descent, right? But that doesn't mean you don't don't learn about everything, right? Because in order for me to understand. Why that Jack Whitten painting is important, I have, to, I have to know something about art history and where it fits. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's interesting for me to look around the world at what other people are doing. That doesn't mean that we acquire that. Right. Now, I have to stick to my discipline so that I can <laughs> We're back to the discipline. allocate the resources appropriately. Um,
1: did you ever imagine that you would be, when you bought that first work, that twenty odd plus years later, you would be thinking like this no. about collecting or, nope. or artists, all or that your practice would be having the kind of impact it's having. No,
0: I didn't. But you know, these things are you know iterative and evolutionary, right? When I decided we would do a book because there was a void in scholarship that had an impact on the visibility of artists who should be more visible, I didn't, I, I didn't anticipate that one would be related to the other. Similarly, I didn't anticipate that a book would result in a show and that a show would result in a, now I'm told it's an award-winning documentary. So, Fantastic. and then the, like the natural evolution of that is, as we discussed, a, an exhibition space. And now I'm kind of putting the brakes on that. So, because, do you
1: do you do these things very intuitively? It sounds like you're working very intuitively in the sense that yes you, and you no. get to a point where you go, "This really, we need this book to articulate this process and this thought." And then the book leads to an exhibition, then the exhibition leads to the documentary, or uh, have you got a master plan? Or you I do
0: not? have a master plan, but but but. So it's, it's a combination of what is intuitive and what is highly planned, right? Because, um, you know, you can only plan based on the knowledge that you have, sure. right? And I just didn't have enough knowledge to understand that a book could lead to a show or that, um, you know, a serious focus on an area of collecting that could lead to a book. Um, but you know, you have to be open to what the next step is. Then you have to assess, do you have the capabilities to execute at a high level um, what the next iteration is? And I said, okay, I can do a book. Okay, I can do a, sh- a show. Um, and I don't know what's next. Um, if it's a museum, I'm saying, okay, I probably can't do that. <laughs>
1: And has the discipline and the distance that it's given you, the book and the show, are you? has it enabled you to look um, at the collection with a little more uh, distance and see gaps or places where you feel you need to pay more attention? Yes.
0: So I see both gaps and I also see, um, we don't sell, but I also see places... Um, where um, I think we're not going to be able to have as much impact or directions, and this is at the margin, that probably aren't our highest and best pursuit. But then there are places where I have questions, like, you know, there are photographers that I really do like, and prob- now I'm more comfortable and have a little bit more runway to think about photography or video or other.
1: Is it important to you to to know the artists or not know the artists? Because I've spoken to a lot of collectors, and some collectors never want to meet the artists. They want to have a very arm's length experience, and others, it's incredibly important that they know the
0: artists. What I would say is I'm completely comfortable knowing the artist. Um, One way it happens very naturally for us is we also run a residency. Um, And so, and it's mostly the- This is in San Francisco? In Sonoma County. Right. And so when artists, in fact, we just had a young artist leave yesterday who'd been there with us since September. And so when you live next door to someone, even if it's for the weekends, um, you really get to know a lot about them, how they think, how they think about their practice. It's really been very, very informative to our collecting style. Um, and so I know collectors who don't want to be colored um, by knowing the artist and having that interfere with their acquisitions or deacquisition ju- judgment. Yeah. Um, that doesn't <clears throat> bother me.
1: Have you ever met an artist where you have owned the work and you've been disappointed or turned off are by, the, we're not, the, by we're, the person by the person absolutely well, I mean, we're not using any names absolutely so like,
0: yeah absolutely um but in those cases to me it's you know it's so clear to me that the art is important um you know i don't require that artists be warm fuzzy social creatures because not all of them are well
1: and, you know, we, we're all different personalities. Exactly. So it doesn't mean that one has to like everybody.
0: Exactly. And one of the artists we own most deeply in the collection died before we started collecting. That's Norman Lewis. Right. So we, don't, we never knew Norman. Right. We know an awful lot of people who were mentored by him. Right. And so in some ways well, that's, that's more a important. Very, that's a
1: good indicator.
0: Yeah. Of an awful of lot of people. Personality. An awful lot of people who right. I mean you know, and that's almost a buying criteria for a certain generation right. of our artists. The second generation of our artists almost across the board were it, it, mentored it, by Norman it, Lewis. It's
1: very interesting. That you've you've actually spoken about this two or three times in this conversation. And I think it's the, probably the first time I've ever heard anybody do this. Um, in one of these conversations for Collect Wisely, but you have you are talking really about a sort of genealogy within certain communities um, where teachers have taught other people who have mentored other people, and you seem to see those genealogical lines quite clearly. <laughs>
0: I didn't look for these a priori when we started collecting.
1: They've become Um, apparent to you.
0: Well, but when you're talking about people born during the height of Jim Crow in the Deep South, like Jack Whitten was, or Sam Gilliam, um, or Mel Edwards, it is, I mean, you know, this was a, a situation where people were highly marginalized on every level. And so while people had their own individual personalities and their own individual aesthetics, there is no such thing to my way of thinking as a black or African American aesthetic. Um, The people with whom those artists could collaborate were peers from their own communities because that was just the way American society was set up at that time. So there are even a number of those creatives who left this country. Buford Delaney was one who lived most of his adult life in France because he just couldn't tolerate the isolation of being both black and gay and from the deep south, uh, born in 1909, right? He needed the freedom um, that living in the 6th arrondissement in Paris afforded him.
1: And interestingly, something that we would talk about very readily and very easily, if one was thinking about jazz musicians, if one was thinking about writers in the 30s and 40s. Well,
0: they all, a lot of them lived right adjacent. They all lived in the 6th. Right. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, one, one would one would think about those correspondences and self-imposed exiles quite clearly, all yeah. the way up to Marvin Gaye, right? Right. Uh, but... I'm not sure that we would think about them in terms of contemporary visual art or adjacent to contemporary visual art. But so they were a,
0: exactly adjacent. I mean, I even have a painting that talks about this. That's
1: such, yeah, but that's such They were such exactly an interesting, adjacent.
0: And not important. only were they adjacent to other African Americans, right? So if you're Buford Delaney and you're living in Paris, either pre-World War II or let's take post-World War II. Um, if you wanted to collaborate with artists outside of the African-American community, you couldn't go to a cafe in Memphis, Tennessee sure. and do that. But you could talk to Leger in a yeah, cafe in Paris. In Paris. Sure. And that's what they did.
1: Yeah,
0: right. Because they were universalists, taking their inspirations from wherever they could find them. Um, and while there were natural uh, lines of communication within the community, because the community was isolated, not self-isolated, but isolated by the broader society. When you're in an environment where you don't have those barriers, you're going to take advantage of everything around you. And some yeah, people needed that outlet. That's
1: really an important point. And um, I, I also wanted to, to sort of focus on, I mean, if one thinks about teaching practice, and one talked about John Baldassare, John Baldassare in Southern California in L.A., I mean, I think we'd probably be talking about paying it forward. We'd be talking about John and his students and then his TAs and their students, et cetera. But actually, um, one of the interesting things that I'm hearing is about paying it back. So talking to you know somebody like Mark Bradford or a younger artist who's saying, yes, but the generation before me was doing this incredible work. You should look at so-and-so, you should look at so-and-so. But
0: Mark's a really good example. He was Charles mm-hmm. Gaines's TA. Right. And but then if you look at the long list of people who were um, associated with Charles, either who were their teaching, his teaching assistants or his students. I mean, just look at who he influenced. So Rodney McMillan, Mark Bradford, Edgar Arsenault, Lauren Halsey, Kathy Opie, anybody who touched California conceptualism was taught and trained by Charles Gaines. Full stop. And right, full and, Sa- and
1: Sam Sam Gilliam in D.C., uh, who much beloved within that community, absolutely uh, having exactly the same kind of impact, absolutely. But we're only now really acknowledging
0: that. Yeah, and so so that is a strand in our collection that exists because it was such a strong presence. We started collecting to that scenario. Yeah, fantastic. So wow. you won't see a lot of artists who work in isolation
1: but one will see a lot of connections. You'll see a lot of connections. In the collection, you'll see a lot of
0: connections. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, so for instance, you know, one of your artists who I, you know, I adore, Hugo McLeod, has said to me, can you arrange for me to spend time in Leonardo Drew's studio? That's so perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They live and breathe materials. Yeah, exactly. And each of them can take any material you find, the threads in that pillow and, and turn it into their language. reimagine is, it. Reimagining it, it, it. And make it recognizable. Yeah. It's just, it's almost in their DNA. And, and
1: make it their own. And make it their own. Yeah. yeah. So, Pamela, this has been such a fantastic conversation. Um, I wish we could continue for, for a lot, lot longer, but I mean, it has been a, an absolute education. Thank you so much. There's one question I really want to ask you. What's that? Um, and that is um, if you could choose. One single artwork to spend the rest of eternity with, um, surrounded by angels playing harps to you for all the good work you do. It doesn't have to come from your collection. It doesn't have. To, it could come from any museum in the world, any historical period. Which single work would, would uh, sustain you and would uh, provide you with that aesthetic sustenance?
0: Okay, I'm, I'm going to answer a different question than what you asked me. <laughs> but you have to answer that one as well. It, it's not one work. Okay. It's not one work. All right. Uh, we'll probably, see if we can get you a dispensation. Uh, okay. You have to give me a little leeway. Okay. So when um, the Tate Modern hung their Soul of a Nation show, in uh, the summer of 2017. I went through it sort of the day before it opened with the curators who I work closely with and really admire. So I thought I had gotten to Pam Joyner Heaven at about Gallery 5. They said, no, 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 just wait a minute, right? Zoe and Mark said, just wait a minute, we've got some another surprise for you. So when I got to Gallery 12, it took me about 30 seconds, I said, if there is a heaven for Pam Joyner, this is it. This is what we want to know about. This is it. To the, I mean, I can. To the right, as you walked in the gallery, was Alma Thomas, uh 1970s painting that the Whitney owns. Next to it was a nineteen seventy um, squeegee painting by Jack Whitten. Next to it was a twenty four foot um, Frank Bowling map painting, Texas Louise, owned by Bob Rennie, who is, you know, my collecting boyfriend. We own some works together. Next to it was um, the work on the cover of our book, Carousel Change, by Sam Gilliam. Then Mel Edwards' um, barbed wire curtain. Um, Then an owl-loving torn canvas painting. In the middle of that little alcove was a Martin Purrier sculpture that's black, that's really, um, from the 1970s, it's really almost a self, Portrait. Also in that room was a Bill Williams shimmer painting, a Joe Overstreet kite painting that we also own, and what was on that back wall? Oh, was it the Ed Clark Egg? Ed Clark Egg painting. That's Pam Joyner Heaven.
1: You know, we're gonna give it to you because, <laughs> and I'll tell you what, because a large part of this conversation has been about the fact that the, uh, the imbalance needs to be addressed. And I think if the imbalance is going to be addressed, we need more Pam the Heavens. So <laughs> that is going to count as one word, only for you.
0: Thank you. Thank so, you. So,
1: Pamela, it's been such a complete pleasure having you on to collect wisely. Thank you so much. I'm glad this and, worked out. And, and, and such an education. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so Great much. Great for your me. Time.
0: Thanks for asking Pearson questions. Oh, it's been such a
1: pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at skny.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at Sean Kelly NY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers! you oh.